It's good to be back with you all, and I trust that Pastor Lynn uh, encouraged you as much as he encouraged me through his sermon. Uh, We did the sermon for our small groups as well, so uh, it was a very, very encouraging and edifying time. So I'm just glad to be back with you and and, uh, to be in a position where I can preach at least. Uh, Boy, these, I tell you what, I commend all of you guys for coming Braving the elements, braving the season of flu and sickness, Uh, quite like nothing I've seen in a while. This is a pretty bad year, isn't it? Uh, But praise the Lord, we're here, we're alive today, and so we might as well enjoy it and get in the Word, right? (laughs) Praise the Lord. Well, if you're still there uh, in Thessalonians, we're going to be looking at verse 8 today. I looked at this passage of Scripture, and after meditating on it for some time, uh, I realized that this is actually a two-part study. There's no way I can fit all of this in, and so we're going to do this for the next couple of weeks and talk about uh, the doctrine of evangelism, or at least the subject of evangelism, and the title of today's sermon is entitled Evangelism Explosion. Now, maybe if you've been around Christianity for some time, you will recall that Evangelism Explosion is the name of uh, D. James Kennedy's uh, evangelistic methodology, uh, Evangelism Explosion, very popular in the 70s, 80s, I believe. Um, But uh, Evangelism Explosion is not meant to be sort of a recapitulation of of, uh, James Kennedy as much as it is an accurate description of what Paul is giving us Uh, in this passage of Scripture out of Thessalonians, and hopefully as we go on, this will become clear, because what is being set out in front of us here is nothing less than an explosive evangelistic phenomenon that took place in Thessalonica, and of course, even abroad, as he mentions even there, uh, in terms of their faith going out to every place. And so... uh, This is where we are. This is where the Lord has us, is talking about evangelism, uh, one of my favorite subjects to preach on and talk about and study. And so I hope that you will be encouraged. And of course, I hope that it will encourage our church, um, every member, every person that is in Christ here, that it will encourage you to become more bold uh, in your witness, that you will become more burdened for the lost, and that this will hopefully propel you to open your mouth and to speak uh, the gospel with your neighbor. And so let us go before the Lord one more time, ask God to bless our time together in his word. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, again, we thank you so much, Lord, that we can gather today on this wonderful day and worship you and to sing your praises, Lord, and to look at your word and to be encouraged, to be instructed in the way of righteousness, to be taught your good word and to be Uh, equipped for the work of ministry. And we pray that today we would would catch uh, not any infectious virus, but that we would catch the zeal of the Thessalonians, that this would be infectious in our congregation, that we would uh, keep up the duty of evangelizing the lost around us. And so we pray, Father, that you would give us that vision today and that you would uh, open our eyes and that we would hear the words of the Savior to look up upon the the harvest because uh, the harvest is truly great. 
Lord. So I pray that you would burden our hearts today with a very evangelistic zeal for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, again, just thinking about uh, this sermon and, 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 and what is being given to us here in this text, I want to focus on the subject of zeal today. Zeal. And so there are really three points that I have, verses 8 through 10. But today we're going to look at point one, and that is this, that authentic evangelism is accompanied by zeal. Now, zeal is a very, um, uh, it's a very amazing uh, virtue of Christianity. Uh, Jesus said, you know, be zealous and repent, he told the churches in Revelation. Uh, Zeal is a byproduct of regeneration. Uh, It is a byproduct of having been born again and having been touched by God, being forgiven by God, and coming into the knowledge of God. It always results in uh, ardor. In other words, it always results in a passion for God. And for the Apostle Paul, I think it was summarized in the phrase that you've heard before, which is that above everything, the Apostle Paul had a passion to know him and to make him known. Uh, That was the whole passion for the Apostle Paul, to know Christ and, of course, to make him known. And repeatedly, Paul uh, talks about his ambition to preach the gospel where Christ has not been preached, to go where Christ has not been preached, to go as far as Spain to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. That was his all-consuming passion. And so evangelism is not to exclude world or global mission, but it includes that. I want to be careful to to sort of uh, distinguish the two. I also want to be careful to distinguish the difference between evangelism and mission, missionary work. I think we have to be uh, careful to always sort of preserve the identity of global missions so that when you step out of this church and go into the community and share the gospel with your neighbor at the end of the, drive, uh, the, the driveway, you are not a missionary when you do that. You are evangelizing and you are involved in the, in the work of the Great Commission, but you are not a missionary. A missionary is someone that operates in different, at different levels of taking the gospel cross-culturally to a people that differs from where you're from. Uh, and that escalates as you go further and further. We're talking about crossing cultures and co- uh, crossing language barriers, and that can intensify the further that you go. Uh, so, for example, if you go from here to Mexico, uh, you certainly are a missionary, but you're a missionary with not a whole lot of cultural challenges. Uh, there are some language barriers But going to Mexico is not the same thing as going to Nepal or Saudi Arabia. There is a distinction between going to the ends of the earth versus going to your Samaria or to the region right next to you. And so hopefully we can talk a little bit about that because all evangelism is is the outworking of the Great Commission, uh, certainly. But it all begins with some sort of thrust, There has to be zeal behind the proclamation of the word. Let's read verse 8 again, just to kind of get a a, a sense of this. That's our focus today. Verse 8 says, For the word of the Lord has sounded forth from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place 
your faith toward God has gone forth so that we have no need to say anything. Now, we're going to develop this as we go, but I want to just sort of systematically take us through the character of the Thessalonian church and to try to decipher what are the characteristics that accompanied their evangelism and their zeal to see if our evangelism and if our zeal match up. And the very first thing that I would say is this, that true evangelistic zeal is Bible-saturated. You see that there in the emphasis on the Word. He says what? For the Word of the Lord has sounded forth from you. What sounded forth from them? The Word of the Lord. It's not your testimony. It's not the felt needs that you're capable of praying for people about. It is primarily the Word of God. It is the Word of the Lord. Now, this Word actually, when it says the Word of the Lord... Halagas tukurio. It literally, you could even say that this is in reference to the gospel, because it's not just that the word of God went out from them, sort of generally indiscriminately, some kind of Bible study, but primarily it was the life saving message of Jesus Christ. That is what went forth from this church, because that message of the gospel is what saved them. And therefore, it was communicated to everyone else. They had learned like the Apostle Paul, to proclaim Him, to proclaim the gospel of Christ, uh, the word of the cross, so many different uh, parallels. But just to think about how explosive this evangelism really was, turn with me, if you would, to the second letter, 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, one of my absolute favorite verses in these letters, if not in all of Scripture. I love, just love the description of the Word of God here. Same phrase, the Word of the Lord. He uses it again here in 2 Thess 3, verse 1. He says, finally, brethren, pray for us that the Word of the Lord will spread rapidly. I have an emphasis on that word, rapidly. It's like wildfire spreading throughout the Roman Empire through the missionary efforts of Paul. He says, and be glorified, which is another way of saying that the Word of God would be magnified, exalted, that it would be, that it would be made much of in their preaching. Just Watch this. Just as it did also with you. You see that? So what we can say is that the word of the Lord spread rapidly with the Thessalonians. And that's what's being captured here in verse 8 of of the first letter, is that that, what we're seeing here is the word of God rapidly, quickly advancing from this church. I love it. I love it because it wasn't a dead church. It wasn't a cold, stale, austere, you know, type of loveless, listless church kind of church. (laughs) It was a passionate church. It was a church that was alive. And you know what they say about a church that's alive? A church alive is worth the drive. Who wants to go to a dead church? No! We want to go where where life is at. But that has to exist in the congregation of the church. It has to be there. We'll come back to that. The church had learned from the Apostle Paul, that it was the word of the Lord that was the power of their salvation. And so I have you now turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 2. I mean, what is a better text in all of Scripture than this passage here where Paul elucidates wherein true salvation is to be found? 
this is a passage you need to know. This is a passage you need to be able to quote, you need to cite, you need to be able to teach, you need to be able to memorize and meditate on what Paul is saying here because as the times become increasingly, um, oh, what's the word I'm searching for? Compromised? As the times become increasingly politically sensitive and correct or what have you, as our culture continues to sort of deteriorate in a postmodern way, we cannot ever forget where the power of God to save resides. Beginning in verse 1, it says, When I came to you, brethren, I did not come with superiority of speech or wisdom. Now, get this out of the way, because what Paul says by superiority of speech and wisdom, he doesn't mean that I came to you as a bumbling idiot or something like that. He doesn't mean that. What he's saying is that the power was not found in my ability to eloquently elucidate my points in some sort of fanciful, philosophical fashion. No! The message of Paul was a rugged cross. And it did not need to be eloquently, poetically articulated to the hearers. You just needed to hear that there was a sin-bearing cross that could take away your sin. And the Apostle Paul accepted the badge of a fool for preaching that cross. He wore it like a badge of honor. He says, I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. That's that's the heart and soul of it all. He says, I was with you in weakness and fear and trembling. My message And my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom, same kind of rhetorical background that was going on in Corinth, but he says, but in the demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith, notice that almost like the explanation here, verse 5, your faith would rest on the wisdom, not on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. In other words, the proof was in the pudding that the preaching of the cross produced what it proclaimed. And what it proclaimed was the power to change your life, the power to, to, to regenerate, to give you new birth, to cause in you a new creation to dawn. And that's what happened to the Corinthians. They became, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17, a new creation in Christ because of the power of the cross. What this tells us, brothers and sisters, is that regardless of our evangelistic opportunity or regardless of our evangelistic platform or regardless of what conversation or situation that you find yourself in, it doesn't matter if you're standing on a box or on a street corner or at the end of your driveway or in a cubicle or talking on the phone with a family member, always circle back to the cross. In all of our apologetics, apologetics only serves the purpose of the cross. And if it doesn't, then we have a deficient apologetic. Because the the, the entire basis of apologetics rests upon the person and work of Jesus Christ. Without Him, we have no defense. Without Him. Like Paul says, 1 Corinthians 15, 19, without Him, our faith is futile. So you can argue all the arguments you want. If you don't come back to the cross, you're missing the entire point of the conversation that you're in with that Muslim, with that atheist, with that agnostic. You have to always come back to the cross. 
It is the wisdom of God. The cross is the wisdom of God. And the message, or the word of the Lord rather, here in Thessalonians was centered upon the Lord Himself. The gospel, the word of the Lord, however you want to put it, all of that had to do supremely with the work of Christ who died and rose again. I'll show it to you. Turn to Acts chapter 17. That is where the Apostle Paul begins his evangelism among the Thessalonians. And in Acts chapter 17, verses 1 through 3, let's see if the Apostle Paul is going to hold true to his word that he determined to know nothing among you except Christ crucified. Let's see if he does it. Acts chapter 17, beginning in verse 1. Now when they had traveled through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And according to Paul's custom, he went to them. And for three Sabbaths, he reasoned with them from the Scriptures. What Scriptures was that? The old, what we call now the Old Testament. Remember when Paul was preaching here, he didn't have Mardell's and they didn't have, you know, new pocket New Testaments down the street. Okay, the Old Testament is the only scriptures that he had in hand. So amazing, right? Because of what? Because from the scriptures, he explained and he gave evidence, watch this, that the Christ had to suffer and then it says he had to rise again from the dead saying, this Jesus whom I'm proclaiming to you is the Christ. Amazing. The, the, the central focus of, of Paul's preaching were the dual estates of Christ that we've studied so much. In Christ, in His dying and in His rising again, therein lies the hope of salvation. Therein lies life. It's through His death, through His path of death on the cross, people can have life. And therefore, that's what we have to preach. Everything rests on Him, you see. Everything. I I was greatly rebuked just in reading this and studying for this, saying I need to emphasize even more so in my evangelism, Christ, 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 to the point of annoyance. I mean, in Acts, they called Paul a pest. That's what the government called him, oh, that pest. He was pestering people with Christ. In Acts chapter 17, it will go on to talk about how he was preaching the resurrection of Christ in the marketplace with whoever was there. And guess what? They, they were so annoyed by him, they started you know, hurling slurs at him, calling him all sorts of derogatory names because he's preaching this crazy doctrine about Jesus and the resurrection. Well, it's because the Apostle Paul understood that Christ crucified was the soul of the gospel. Sounds like a familiar book I'm thinking about somewhere. But Sharnock, very eloquently, see, there's nothing wrong with eloquence as long as it's about Christ crucified. Listen to what Stephen Sharnock said because this was so great. In his book, Christ Crucified, The Once for All Sacrifice, Sharnock says, Let us look upon Christ crucified, the remedy of all of our miseries, 
His cross has procured a crown. His passion has expiated our transgressions. His death has disarmed the law. His blood has washed the believer's soul. This death is the destruction of our enemies, the spring of our happiness, the eternal testimony of divine love. We have good reason, as well as the apostle, to determine with ourselves to know nothing but Jesus Christ and especially Him crucified. Amen. You're getting a little bit passionate now to preach Christ crucified because He is all of these wonderful things for us. He is the spring of our happiness. He is that which disarms the terror of the law. More than man's condemnation, brothers and sisters, let me challenge us a little bit here and maybe ruffle some feathers. More than condemning people in our preaching, condemn, condemn, condemn. More than laying the law, the law, the law, the law. I'm going to argue for preach Christ. Let Christ ring out from your mouth. More than anything, Christ has the power to redeem you from the law. Don't talk about the law's condemnation unless you're going to talk about the law's remedy. I told you, I've gotten in trouble for this. I was preaching at a conference and I actually got some flack because I said the Christian evangelist has not done his duty unless he preaches Christ. Never, ever, ever leave someone only with condemnation. Don't ever just recite the Ten Commandments to somebody and say, oh, well, they don't, they're not ready for the rest of the message yet. No! I will go on to say that Christ crucified is essential for making men uh, aware and making men sensible of their misery. Show them the cross as that emblem of God's curse on sin. Show them that at the cross, God's displeasure for sin is seen the clearest. How much does God hate sin? Well, it says, you shall not lie. Have you lied? No, no, no. God hates sin so much that He put His Son on a cross and called Him anathema, cursed Him. There He was under the wrath of God on the cross for sinners. That's why we need to preach Christ crucified. And if you're waiting around for people to be humble enough to receive Christ, you might be waiting for a long time because people are pretty prideful. Even in the false appearance of humility, you don't know who truly is humble of heart. Just preach Christ. Oh, if we really love them, perhaps on their deathbed they might recall some crazy guy or girl was telling me about this Jesus that can save me from my sins if I just call out and cry out to Him. Perhaps they'll do that at a time that you do not expect. I tell you what, it's never too, it's never too late for someone because... I've done convalescent home ministry where I've interacted with people that are, well, let's just say they're living out their last days. And you know what's amazing to me? Time and time and time and time again, these people, 80s, 90s, some of them, you know, going up to really old, they can't move, they can't walk, they can't, many of them, you know, they're, they're bedridden. And you know what so many of those men and women tell me? Well, I remember in Sunday school, you know, Miss So-and-so was telling us about Jesus. And they don't forget. You won't forget. And so hopefully somebody will share Christ crucified and somebody will remember what you shared with them. I can stay all day on that. But the other thing is that true biblical evangelistic zeal is also bold. 
I want to say that it was bold because of the word that Paul uses here. Look back at the text. He says, for the word of the Lord has sounded forth from you. Now, I want to make a lot out of that phrase. Sounded forth from you. Why? Because that Greek word there, exekeo, does not appear anywhere else in the entire New Testament except right here. And Paul uses this word very strategically almost to say that what was going on in in the Thessalonian church was that the word of of God was literally thundering out of this church. Why do I say that? Because the Greek word actually is used in antiquity, extra-biblical literature, outside of the Bible for several things. One was the sound of the roaring and the crashing waves that sounded forth. Another one was the the sound of howling that sounded forth. The other one was the sound of thunder that sounded forth out of a thunderstorm. This is the way the ancients used this word, exekeo. Exekeo was used to talk about a sound that would echo in all directions. It's just kind of like a, a reverberation. So what is Paul saying? Now, now work with me. Now Paul is looking for a word that will adequately describe the evangelistic outreach of this church. And the word that he uses is the word that means it was like thunder in every direction. Wow. These guys must have been pretty zealous. But it was authentic. Because later on he says, we have no need to say anything. It's self-evident, axiomatic faith. Doesn't need any sort of alternative sort of commendation. It just is what it is. It was self-evident. And that's how we should be. Self-evidently bold. Not something that we need to work up. It's just a result of the passion that results from regeneration. That's the way that it should work. You're regenerated and then you are bold enough to preach the gospel of regeneration. The gospel that saved you. You can't hide that. What did Jesus tell his disciples? You are a light. Excuse me, he says, you are the light of the world. You are a city set on a hill. It cannot be hidden. Nor does anyone light a lamp to put it under a basket, but on the lampstand. And it gives light to all who are in the house. Therefore, he says, let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your God who is in heaven, even if the glorifying of God who is in heaven is not apparent at the moment. How many times have I seen someone that I've been evangelizing, let's say for some time, and my context has been UNT for the last 10 years, but evangelizing for some time, and I get great opposition from this person, Come back a week later, month later, sometimes a year later, and something has changed. The countenance has changed. The attitude has changed. The voice has changed. The, the, the whole, everything has changed. I had one young man, I'll never forget. I was preaching and he was hurling, you know, all sorts of colorful things my way. And um, he had, I think he had red hair and he had a, a foxtail pinned to his pants. He's in college, that's what you do, right? And this guy was just saying the nastiest things you've ever heard. Well, he came back next week, and I noticed that this time he came to the microphone, and he was very polite, still completely rejecting and opposing everything I was saying. 
He came back the next week again, and he brought me a cake, <laughs> which I did not eat. Make Wally test it for me. <laughs> I thought, this is odd. He brings me his girlfriend, brings his girlfriend up to me and says, I want you to tell her everything that you told me because you've made me rethink my entire Buddhist worldview. I've had to rethink everything. See, at the moment of preaching Christ crucified, you would have never thought this guy one day is going to glorify my father in heaven. But who knows if God in a year from now is not going to grab a hold of that person's heart. And I can tell you testimony after testimony after testimony. You know, I don't go to, when I do UNT evangelism, uh, I don't get up there and start listing off all the people that have come to Christ because of our efforts or something like that, right? That's, we're not to do that in public. That's not the point, you know what I mean? But I've had those. I had a young lady. I'll never forget. And I rejoice in it because the angels rejoice in heaven. She came up to me, and we just kind of bumped into each other. She said, I can't believe it's you. I said, who? She said, you. She said, you were preaching here several years ago. Listen to this, guys. Let this encourage you. You were preaching here several years ago. I was not a Christian. I was uh, living with my boyfriend at the time, immorality. Uh, I was uh, completely hostile to God. She was talking to me, and I noticed she was holding a Bible. And I thought, okay, this story is getting better and better every second. And she says, now I'm a Christian. I'm born again. I'm a member of a church. I thought, why don't we do this more? My wife's back there going, "Mm -hmm, mm-hmm, (laughs) mm-hmm. To me, (laughs) I'm telling you, greatly rebuked. I felt I've been uh, feeling extremely apathetic lately when it comes to evangelism. Pray for me. I was going to end with that, but I'll I'll come back to that. The need to kind of keep up the zeal. Uh, Zeal is not guaranteed. Zeal can be lost. Passion and a concern for the lost can be lost. You can grow cold. You can grow loveless. You can grow apathetic. You can view the lost people around you and not care that they are on, a, on their way to a Christless eternity in hell. I was meditating on hell this week because of a conversation I had with Pastor Lynn. Uh, he was in the MRI machine, and he began to get claustrophobic. I hope you don't mind me sharing, because I'm just like you, brother. I would have I hit the button, too. Get me out of here. But, but, but it just reminded him, and it reminded me of the horror of hell. I thought, if you got claustrophobic in an MRI machine, and you kind of got that overwhelming sense of hopelessness, imagine hell for all eternity. John Piper says, it is only by the grace of God that he does not allow us to meditate on the doctrine of hell for too long. Because it would drive us mad. And then imagine that people are going there and that we have the remedy. And that we have the remedy to all of our miseries, as Sharnock says, and that we don't speak it, that we don't share it. As Spurgeon would say, If people are going to go to hell, let them climb over our bodies and our arms that are trying to grab a hold of them on their way. The word of the Lord sounded forth from this church. And where did it sound forth? All over the place. On the next point, I want to say that true evangelistic zeal is also visionary. Turn to the book of Acts. 
Now, I want you to be ready with your little finger there, ready in rapid-fire fashion. We're going to go through the book of Acts. Ready? Acts chapter 6. Because when I say that it was visionary, it was always looking forward. It was always seeking to spread further. It was always continually growing outward. And I think you see this so clearly in the book of Acts. The book of Acts is about what? The book of Acts is about the spread of the Word of God. That's really what it is. How did it happen? How did we get to the point that we got to in church history? Well, Acts is the Bible's church history. And in the book of Acts, what's recorded more than anything else is how the Word of God grew into other areas of the world, just metastasized into all these regions. And look at Acts chapter 6. You get these crucial statements that are being made here. It says, the word of God, this is Acts chapter 6 verse 7. Ready? This is, we'll go quick. Acts 6, 7. The word of God kept spreading. And a number of the disciples continued to increase greatly in Jerusalem. And a great many of the priests, wow, look at that, guys. A great many of the old covenant priests working in the Levitical temple, what? became obedient to the faith. Wow! You think that might cause a stir in Jerusalem? Look at chapter 9. Turn over to chapter 9, verse 31. Chapter 9, verse 31. By the way, can I tell you how wonderful it is to hear Bible pages turning while you're up here? Yeah, I have an advantage over you. I'm up here. I can hear those Bible pages so well. It's like a choir. Acts chapter... May I get a worship tape of just Bible pages turned? Anyway, <laughs> Acts chapter 9, verse 31. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria enjoyed peace, being built up and going on in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit. It continued to increase. Chapter 12, verse 24. Chapter 12, verse 24. This is a glorious verse here. Look at this. But the word of the Lord continued to grow and to be multiplied. Hmm, that's interesting language. Increase, grow, be multiplied. Um, we don't have time to talk about this, but I, a, lot, uh, a lot of people, including G.K. Beale, have pointed out how that the language of growing and multiplication in, in the land, in, in Acts, is sort of fulfillment of the creation mandate. Adam and Eve, be fruitful and multiply. That ultimately had spiritual connotations that are fulfilled in the multiplication of, of the second Adam's spiritual descendants. And now we're seeing being fruitful and multiplying in the book of Acts. Not because everyone was having 20 kids, but because disciples were being born. And that is the fulfillment of that mandate. That's amazing, isn't it? In verse, uh, and then in chapter uh, 12 verse 24 says the word of the Lord continued to grow and to be multiplied chapter 16 verse 5 so the churches were being strengthened in faith Acts 16 5 and they were increasing in number daily beautiful chapter 19 verse 20 so the word of the Lord was growing mightily and it was prevailing I love that prevailing was prevailing acts chapter 28 verse 31 preaching uh, there we see sort of the close of the church history book in the bible the book of acts acts chapter 28 verse 31 we as the reader we are supposed to jump into the story at this point 
We are supposed to sort of see ourselves in the stream of redemptive history as well. And what the way that it ends is like this. Paul was preaching the kingdom of God and teaching concerning the Lord Jesus Christ with all openness, unhindered. So the book of Acts ends with this final note on growth. The word of God was going forward. Where did all this come from? Well, if we just stay in Acts, what does Jesus say? Acts 1, verse 8, You will receive power when the Spirit has come on you, and you will be witnesses to me both in Jerusalem and in Judea and in Samaria. Now this is crucial, ready? Even to the remotest part of the earth. Why is that crucial? Well... Because Judea, Samaria, done. The gospel is there. It reached there. Now, to the remotest part of the earth. And if you just pick up any missionary manual, pick up Operation World, for example, right? And I think the estimation is 3,000 or so unreached people groups on planet earth who have never heard the gospel. Never. And I understand. Those people are coming here. I mean, I've witnessed to Muslims who have told me, if they're telling me the truth, in broken English, after I have asked them, have you ever heard any of this? No. You've never heard about Jesus Christ dying on the cross, rising again for the forgiveness of your sins. No. Had one young man. No, that's why I'm in America. So that I can learn something new. I said, well, this is not just something new. This is the pinnacle, man. Like you hit the lotto, baby. It's not just something new that you tack on. This is it. You got nowhere else to go. And so... The point is, is that we get an opportunity in evangelism to join with God, to be His fellow workers, as it were. 1 Corinthians 3.9 says, We are God's fellow workers in His field, which is the people of God. Where did all this come from? You know what? It's amazing. Just to give you a little bit of theology here, if you look at Ezekiel chapter 17, maybe you can write it down. I'll read it to you. Ezekiel chapter 17, this is where all of this comes from. I mean, Jesus' great commission in in Matthew uh, 28 and in Acts chapter 1, that great commission did not come from any, just from nowhere. It is the fulfillment of the eschatology of the prophets. Did you guys hear me? It is the fulfillment of the eschatology of the prophets. That's what the great commission is. For example, Ezekiel 17, 22. This is what stands behind Jesus teaching about the spread of the kingdom of God like a mustard seed that will go out into all the world. All of that. He says, thus says the Lord of hosts, or the Lord God, I will also take a a sprig from the lofty top of the cedar and set it out. I will pluck from the topmost a young twig, a tender one, and I will plant it on a high and lofty mountain. On the high mountain of Israel I will plant it and that it may bring forth boughs and bear fruit and become a stately cedar. The birds of every kind will nest under it. 
They will nest in the shade of its branches, I think representative of the nations. All the trees of the field will know that I am the Lord. Well, isn't that amazing? This arboreal theology of the prophets. I, I bring down the high tree. I exalt the low tree. Dry up the green tree. Make the dry tree green. Or flir- excuse me. Make the dry tree flourish. I am the Lord. I have spoken and I will perform it. And he performed it in Jesus. He performed it in the book of Acts. And he is performing it right now. Turn to Revelation chapter 5. Revelation chapter 5 as the fulfillment of all of this. Looking back now, after redemptive history is over in a sense, looking back at what is going to happen, what's going to be the final testimony of all of this. Revelation chapter 5 verse 9 says, They sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals, for you were slain and you purchased, you made atonement for God with your blood. You purchased for God with your blood men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. And you have made them into a kingdom and priests to our God and they will reign upon the earth. That's the fulfillment of it all. The creation of a new man, of a new humanity, prepared for a new world. That's what goes on in evangelism. I talked about this in my book, Convert, that evangelism is not just some isolated event where one Christian shares with one person in hopes that some sort of religious thing or some religious effect takes place. No, it's much greater than that. You have to, you have to sort of stand back and see the whole panoramic so that you understand in context what your evangelistic effort means when you're at the office with the family talking to a neighbor and that person, by the grace of God, comes into the kingdom of God And what that means is that you are helping God to build a new humanity in Christ Jesus for a new world. That's what it's all about. How do I move on from there? Well, I have to. The last thing is this. True evangelistic zeal is also commendable. So much sloppy zeal. Again, starting with me, I, I, I sort of reflected on this and I thought, you know, the Scripture really has some... Uh, I think the exegesis is speaking about something slightly different, but in terms of zeal that is commendable, I thought, you know, I want commendable zeal. I don't want sloppy zeal. I don't want zeal that's going to bring a reproach on my Savior. I don't want zeal that's going to be a hindrance for the Gospel. I don't want to stumble people. I don't want to unnecessarily anger people and ruffle feathers. And I tell you what, I'm on the tightrope of that balance doing the type of preaching that I've done. And I thought, you know, on top of that, there's so much sloppy zeal out there. There's obviously crazy, extreme, charismatic circles like Bethel that go out and prophesy crazy things over people. And I've even seen around town. Have you seen it? They have tents outside saying, if you need prayer, come on in type of thing. So it's like you just sit there all day and pray for people's felt needs, okay, or something like that. That's our mission, right? I don't know. Paul wasn't out praying for people. He was preaching Christ crucified to them, <laughs> Right? I mean, that's such a bait and switch to me. It's so dishonest. Like, yeah, well, of course. I mean, out of everyone going by in their SUV, how many of those people have problems in their home? You think people are going to relate? Well, of course they're going to relate. Everybody's got issues. 
but you sit them down and say, how about you put a, a thing that says, come and listen to Christ crucified being preached. <laughs> Be like, mm. <laughs> you offer prayer? Well, sure. On top of that, the seeker-sensitive consumerism of the church, that almost goes without saying. Ecumenical confusion that's taking place all over the place. Unequipped, biblically illiterate Christians. read an article about a professor in a Bible college who said that in contrast to 20 years ago, the illiteracy of, of Christians coming into seminary is staggering. He says he can't believe. Compared to 20 years ago, he can't believe where people are at today in their biblical knowledge. They, he's basically saying some of the most basic fundamental things they don't know. I mean, this was like assumed back in the day. Now it's like biblical illiteracy as, as at an all-time high. And I thought, isn't that amazing? Isn't that amazing in an age where we have access to biblical literacy everywhere? <laughs> I mean, I have, where's my cell phone? It's not on me, thank goodness. It, on my cell phone, I have 5,000 books on my cell phone. Through Bible Logos, I have hundreds of commentaries. I have endless Greek lexicons. I have endless Christian literature. I have all of the church fathers. I have church history. I've got everything on my phone at the touch of a button. And this professor is saying Christians know less now than they did 20 years ago. What is going on? I'll tell you what's going on is that instead of swiping on that, you know, Bible lexicon, you know, I want to look over here and look at the headlines and come over here and check the, the sports. And We're too distracted with all of our convenient technology that is supposed to make us more efficient Bible scholars. It just has turned us into a bunch of distracted scholars, if you're a scholar. Well, this church was commendable. Stay with me. Just a little bit more work here. Stay with me. The zeal was commendable. Uh, John MacArthur captures the essence of this. He says their influence was so clear and extensive that Paul said he had no need to say anything. In fact, the news of the Thessalonian salvation was sub- and subsequent powerful witness was so convincing that Paul said that people who heard the testimony of the church could themselves report about us what kind of reception we had with you. Rather than Paul telling people he met on his travels about what God had done in that city, people were telling him what was becoming commonly known. Every church could wish for such an impact and reputation. In other words, Paul, by the time Paul got to certain regions, the time he got there, people were telling him what is going on in the place he just came from. (laughs) That's how quickly the news was spreading. It was exploding. It was just... Gospel gossip everywhere. It was spreading like wildfire. So that he didn't need to tell people. People were telling him. (laughs) Paul was probably sitting there going, yeah, I had something to do with that. It's beautiful. It just means that this is the power of the gospel. When the gospel goes forth, these are the effects that it can have. Finally, turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 2. Because when we commit to being evangelistic, and I hope that we all are, and let me qualify that by saying we're all different. Not all of you, most of you, will never open-air preach. Most of you will never stand on a box on the corner of a street 
And I'm here to tell you that is absolutely fine. Uh, I tend to have the opposite view. I, I'm kind of leery to the point of uh, I'm more towards the opinion that less of you should stand on a box and preach because more of you will have greater condemnation <laughs> and greater judgment, as James says. But you know what I mean. Um, I'm not so far off to the opinion as some. Some would say you need to be qualified to be an elder, to be open-air preaching. I, I don't share that conviction. But I, I, I kind of sympathize where they're coming from. That if you're going to stand up in a, in a public place and take the posture of a preacher, your life better line up with the image that you're giving. And so absolutely, it's an incredibly weighty responsibility to publicly declare yourself a herald of the gospel. So I sympathize with that position. But I think any member in good standing should be able to share the gospel with anyone if God gives you opportunity. And I think to whatever degree you're at, whatever, whatever degree you're gifted and equipped and able to do it, do it! God has, God has gifted some of you in certain ways that you, you can't even imitate it. Because God uses you and your personality and the way that you are and your experiences and, and your background in and, and, and ways that He just wouldn't use, he wouldn't use me. I mean, I go to hand out a track to a lady and she's like, Trisha goes to Hannah. I mean, they're best friends in five minutes. Ladies have a huge advantage. Let me admonish you again. Ladies, your opportunity to witness to Muslim women is much greater than men. We are not allowed to talk to Muslim women. A committed Muslim woman is not allowed to shake hands with a man, even to look at a man in the eye, let alone enter into a conversation with him. We know this from the Bible, right? The, the, the woman in Samaria. You, a man, a Jew, speaking to me, a woman, a Samaritan. Right? Jesus crossed, crossed those barriers, but as women, you have an opportunity to reach out to these Muslim ladies. Man, I tell you what, go down to the, go down to the Walmart in Irving, okay? You want to see little Mecca? I'm not kidding you. I went there because I, I did evangelism in the mosque in Irving uh, some years back went and talked to the imam there, and, and afterwards we visited the Walmart right across the street. I, I, I couldn't believe it. I, it was like living in the Middle East. You have such an incredible opportunity. Just go shopping and share the gospel. It'd be like <laughs> you're a missionary just by going to Walmart. Isn't it amazing? See, if, you're, if you share any part of the passion of the Thessalonians, this gets you excited if not, this makes you cringe. Like, ugh, not me. Here I am, Lord, send her. <laughs> right? But I want to encourage you with one last verse. Because it is the truth about what happens in the act of evangelism. 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14. And it's something that all of us can take incredible comfort and courage in. You ever walked away from an evangelistic encounter defeated? You ever walked away from an evangelistic encounter discouraged? Like, man, that went terrible. <laughs> I think I did more damage than good, <laughs> right? Because I got in the way and I got scared and, you know, I didn't say this right and, and you know, whatever. Listen to this promise. Paul says, after he just... You know, very turbulent context. 
of where he was at in dealing with the Corinthians, he says, thanks be to God, who what? When your evangelism is airtight. It's not what it says. Who always leads us in triumph in Christ. What's the context? Watch this. He manifests through us the sweet aroma of the knowledge of Him in every place. You are like a fragrance. That's what he says. We are a fragrance of Christ to God and and among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. See, it's like it's automatic. You don't have to strive for this. If you're a Christian and you dare open your mouth, you are this. One, you are an aroma of death to death. To the other, you are an aroma of life to life. And who is adequate for these things? In other words, what Paul is saying is this, this is so weighty. This is, the gravity of this is so huge that just by you stepping into the room, into the conversation and sharing and talking about Jesus Christ, eternity hangs in the balance. You are affecting the saved And the perishing. To one, you smell like the best air freshener you've ever smelled. Life. To the other person who's perishing, you smell like a rotting corpse. And you know what? Praise God. He gets the glory. It's His doing. That we are not like many peddling the Word of God. But as from sincerity, as from God, we speak in Christ in the sight of God. Of God. That's why the church was so commendable. They didn't care about man's approval. See? They cared about in the sight of God. Paul says, It's a very small thing for me to be judged by you or by any human court. I don't even judge myself. Paul says, 1 Corinthians 4, God is the one who will judge me. And so that's very liberating when you think about that. If you do evangelism or you go out with you know, us on, a, on an evangelistic outing or something, you don't need to perform for the person next to you. You don't need to try to sound like you know more than you actually know. You don't need to try to be somebody that you're not, right? Just share what you know and share it with joy and confidence, knowing God is with you. He will never let you down. This is a win-win situation because you have the gospel and you're an aroma of death to death and life to life. And leave it at that. So freeing, so liberating. Let's pray before I open up another can of worms. It'll take us 20 minutes to unravel. (laughs) Let's pray. Father, Lord, very simple for us to sit back and to think, well, that's not me. I'm not gifted that way. That's not my gift. That's not my burden. That's not my calling. And to some degree, that's true. Some of us are not called to be as evangelistic as the next person. Because you have gifted your church with evangelists. But every believer in here is called upon God to give an answer. Is called upon the Lord to give a defense for the hope that is in us. And every disciple was told to look up because the harvest was ripe. And so Lord, we pray now to the Lord of the harvest. Send out labors into your field. In Jesus' name, amen.